So as I mentioned, I wrote the bulk of this sermon about 10 days ago, before we knew that one of our own had the coronavirus, before we canceled a worship service on a Sunday, before Ken Hunt Sr. died, and before most of the world shut down. So much has changed since I originally wrote this. Originally, I opened the sermon by trying to convey how important the idea of social interconnectedness was to the biblical peoples of the world. Um, and how difficult it is, or it had been, for most of us in the United States to see ourselves as socially interconnected. Honestly, that was the way I was planning on opening. Opening again, how much has changed in just 10 days. The, the rapid global spread of this virus has revealed to many of us the extent of how truly intertwined all human beings are across this entire planet. Unfortunately, there are still far too many in the United States especially who are trying to deny this reality or mockingly trying to defy it. But this interconnected reality will not be mocked. And we will all pay the price for the ignorance and belligerence of even a small percentage of people in the U.S. or elsewhere who don't understand this. There are some people who are still rebelling against this corporate identity, this identity of us as one body. And however, the, the virus has shown us that we all have to come to terms with the truth that we are far more responsible for one another and dependent on one another than we had often understood until now. We did have, and we do have one very significant example within our culture that has revealed, uh, before even, that we occasionally do see ourselves as part of one single, large, interconnected organism. The example that had come to mind uh, was the way that we think of ourselves in terms of generations. Think about this. We have names and dates that we use to bracket out millions of people into one whole. The baby boom generation. Gen X, Gen Y, the millennials. We, we, we put millions of people into this one entity. We share corporately this identity across millions of individuals of one particular generation. And we even claim at times that this whole entity of millions of these individuals can share common characteristics based on their generation. And we react to this as one. So 
Especially when somebody says something good about the generation that we're a part of. We think, oh yeah, that's the way I am. That's the way we are as a generation. All of this leads into this morning's story. Because as one commentator, the British writer R.T. France knows, that phrase, this generation, holds this whole section together. I think that God calls us to hear the words of this morning's scripture from our position within our corporate bodies as parts of a whole congregation or a whole generation or a whole nation for that matter, if not also as one human race. And further, if we can do that, if we can see ourselves as part of these larger entities, I think as I was saying with the kids particularly, we will see that we owe it to the succeeding generations to share Christ. Jesus begins our story with a sweeping condemnation of a huge group of people. In verse 39... Jesus says, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given. Jesus is referring to a whole generation represented by the religious leaders who have just asked this question, Teacher, or it's not even really a question, they, they demand it. We want to see a miraculous sign from you. And Jesus says, only a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. Well, they have just asked for it, so he's calling them a wicked and adulterous generation. Even the way Jesus describes the sin of this generation further links them together as one. He calls them adulterous. So William Barclay clarifies Jesus' thoughts for us. He writes that, Behind the word adulterous is a favorite Old Testament picture. The relationship between Israel, the whole nation of Israel, and God was conceived of as a marriage between God as the husband and Israel, the whole nation as the bride. Barclay writes, When therefore Israel was unfaithful and gave her love to other gods, the nation, the whole nation was said to be adulterous, to have betrayed that relationship after strange gods. The word describes the infidelity to God from which all sin, physical and spiritual, springs. Jesus is condemning this whole generation of people as one adulterous spouse. Jesus speaks to this entire generation of a nation of people as if they have all betrayed their relationship with God. And how they did that is also important for us to know. They've done this by not accepting and embracing Jesus as the embodiment of God on earth. They say to Jesus that they want a sign from God that he is who he says he is. What they really mean is, even with all that Jesus has already done, and all that they've seen and heard from Jesus, 
they still don't believe that he is the anointed one of God, the special one, the Messiah. They say that they want God to send some sort of sign that will confirm this for them. But Jesus says to them, you've already seen enough. You should be able to already know who I am, that I am God embodied on earth. Jesus gives two examples of other peoples who had a lot less to convince them that they were hearing from God and yet were convinced. He writes in verse 41, The people of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Verse 42, the queen of, she, uh, the, queen of the south, uh, sometimes it's the queen of Sheba, it's really the queen of Ethiopia is, is what they believe uh, was the country from which she was the queen. The queen of Ethiopia will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. The Israelites and the, the religious leaders especially that were hearing this were flabbergasted at what Jesus was saying because both the people from Nineveh and the queen of Ethiopia at the time were considered uh, pagans. They weren't part of God's people as God's people knew the community at the time. But even though they were outside of this covenant, they believed that God spoke through Jonah and through Solomon. Jesus says that those pagans will stand up on Judgment Day and came condemn this generation of God's people because this generation of God's people don't believe Jesus. That the, these other folks had far less to go on and they believed and here Jesus is speaking and showing them who he is, and this generation doesn't believe it. believe it. Jesus is not shy about asserting his role in history. So after he says the people of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of Sheba will rise and condemn this generation because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and now one greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is talking about himself. John Calvin, who wrote about church things 500 years ago, wrote, Jesus pronounces them to be a wicked nation declaring that they labored under a, a, a hereditary disease of obstinacy. The Ninevites were ungodly people who never had heard the word of the true God and yet repented at the voice of someone unknown and foreign who came to them. The queen of Ethiopia traveled a great distance seeking the wisdom of a strange God while this country, Calvin talking about, the people of God, which is the sanctuary of heavenly doctrine, does not hear the Son of God, the promised Redeemer. As soon as Jesus is done condemning this generation, 
He tells what, again, this man William Barclay calls this compact, eerie little parable about a haunted house. This is a very odd little and eerie little story. And I will admit that when I first read through this, I thought to myself, why did the lectionary people who put these readings together, why did they include this little story about the haunted one? It seemed to me unrelated and obscure. Let me read it again to remind you how weird it is. When an evil spirit comes out of a person, it goes through desert places seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and live there. And the final condition of the person is worse than the first. What? Why that story, and why now, and why did the editors put these together? The key is the last little line that I just out, left out for emphasis. So after Jesus tells that odd little story, he says, this is how it will be with this wicked generation. Again, this idea of whole generation of people is what Jesus is talking about throughout this whole story. And somehow, this story is to help this generation understand itself and what it's missing. Jesus is likening this whole generation of people to the one person in this parable. And essentially, he's saying, okay, this generation has done well at essentially cleaning house at getting rid of some of the bad things. In fact, the religious leaders of the time were well known for their purity, especially and even including, very interestingly these days, they had very elaborate uh, cleaning rituals, including hand washing, very elaborate hand washing rituals. They were known for being pure and clean, but in many ways it was only on the outside. They were empty in their hearts. They were empty of a heart for God, specifically. Jesus had come to share with them the full presence of God in their midst, but they didn't accept it. And Jesus is warning them and saying, if you don't fill your hearts, if you don't fill your homes with God, with the Spirit of God, it will fill up with something else. And it likely won't be good. Dale Bruner, a great uh, teacher, has some beautiful reflections on what Jesus is trying to tell God's people. And he writes that the key term is empty, unoccupied. He writes, the towns that Jesus visited had swept themselves clean and had tidied themselves up as a result of Jesus' appearance. But Tidying up, sweeping clean, externally fixing up, are not Jesus' reasons for coming. In all of these religious but external activities, the house itself remains unoccupied, vacant, and empty. The house is clean, but empty. 
The person is religious, but hollow. The community is outwardly moral and inwardly purposeless. Mere interest in Jesus with no commitment to him is a house in danger of haunting. When I first read these words 10, 12 days, well, about actually two weeks ago, the first person that came to mind after reading Bruner's words was Lindsey Graham. For those of you who don't know him, he's a current senator in the US, for the U.S. I have been so angry and, and astonished at how he could go, Lindsey Graham could go from calling the current occupant of our White House an idiot and dangerous when he was still a candidate to praising him for the exact opposite characteristics within weeks after Trump was elected. And it's all, the contrast is all on video. Within 90 days, he went from one thing that he's caught on video saying to saying the exact opposite. And I just think, I've literally, when I read Bruner's words, I thought to myself, how empty must Lindsey Graham be to be filled so quickly with such evil? And honestly, I think that that is the case with a number of high-profile, particularly GOP leaders, and frankly, evangelical leaders within the church. Also, Jesus' words that such is this generation wouldn't leave me. I'm in an interesting spot when it comes to generations in the U.S. because I was born in 1964. So I am right on the cusp between the baby boomers and Gen X. And depending on, most of the time I'm like the last year of the baby boomers, but occasionally you'll see I'll even be included with Gen X. So I've, I've been on this cusp, so I've always kind of like had an interest in both and, and kept uh, uh, track of and did a lot of thought and reading about both. And here's one of the thoughts that I've had about my boomer brothers and sisters. I've had this for a long time. I think one thing that this generation did, the boomers, did profoundly well was to question tradition and authority and to break free from what much of what was just assumed to be the way things were done. And in that way, also be open to new things, entirely new things. And I think that there is much to be grateful for in that. However, there's much to lament as well. Because as a generation, I don't know that all that was broken free from has been replaced by something better. Or anything. I think early on everything seemed better because it was new. But now we have lived long enough to know that not all is well. And I think that for many people in our nation, 
in multiple generations, there's an emptiness. For me personally, what filled the emptiness that I was aware of in myself growing up was the presence of Christ, of Jesus. The reason I do what I do, the reason I'm a pastor, the reason I'm a minister of the word and sacrament is so that I can share Christ with others who either already know Christ, and we can encourage one another, or who are, are seeking to find something of meaning and value to fill their lives. Jesus is that for me, and I believe can fill that void for all people. And that is what we believe in as a Christian church. As much as it is essential for us to love our neighbors in really very tangible ways, with food and shelter and clothing and hygiene kits, those things by themselves won't fill the emptiness of a spirit. People's lives will be filled with something eventually. Most of us in the church have been fortunate enough to have that presence of Christ fill our hearts. And part of the reason that we continue to gather here, even when it's very difficult, that we continue to serve our neighbors from our little corner in Queen Anne, is so that others will have the possibility, at least, to experience the presence of Christ also. We owe it to our own generation, and especially every generation that follows us, to share Christ, that the Spirit of Christ might fill the emptiness. There are some very high-profile evangelical leaders these days who claim that the coronavirus is God's judgment on bad people. I furiously disagree with this, primarily because the God that I know through Jesus Christ works through invitations of grace and hope, not through judgment and doom. But when Jesus does pronounce judgment and doom, it's usually on church leaders who say stuff like that. Honestly, look at our, our story this morning. People who don't recognize God in person and whose souls are either empty or they're filled with evil. I will say, though, that with all of the forced removal of many of the things the activities with which we fill our lives, I think that there will be, if not already are, a lot of us who are reflecting on life as a whole. And why are we here? What, what is important and significant? And I think some in the U.S. are beginning to see a hollowness at the core of who we are as a nation, a core of our life together as a nation. So I hear these words from Jesus this morning addressed to this generation. And I hear God's words to all of us reminding us of how vital it is to fill emptiness with Christ, with Christ's grace 
and love and kindness and healing and hope. We need this for our own generations, and we owe it to those who follow. Amen.